Well, turn your Bibles, if you would, to Ezekiel 18. We will be looking at the text. We're going through the text, and I think it'll be beneficial if you see that in your own Bible. And as Reagan was talking about this morning, making notes in your Bible is is so important. Uh, I had forgotten that the name Daniel meant uh, God judges, but uh, when Reagan was up here talking about Daniel, I looked down, and there's a little note right under the name Daniel, that God judges. It's easy to forget those things, even though you may spend a lifetime studying, and it's always good when we take the time to write things down. I'm reminded I'm I'm, uh, old enough, obviously, to forget things. And and this took place, I don't know, probably five years or so ago. I was um, uh, doing, you know, just doing some reading, and... uh, I, I, I glance over and I see this note, and, and I read the note, and I think, huh, good point. And then it dawned on me, I was the guy that wrote it, of course, you know, but, uh, and I had forgotten it, and then read it again, and think, oh, that, that's interesting. So it's easy to forget those things. Good to be with you and enjoying that uh, time that we're able to spend here and uh, be with the Kids and grandkids and all of that, it's, it's uh, very uh, enjoyable. There's always a, a list, of course, that Stephanie has, and, and we're working uh, furiously to uh, get through that. One brother said, uh, well, will you tell her not to work you so hard? And, but I, I let him know that everything's fine. Uh, they, they let me knock off at three, so, so we're, we're good. You know, I, I get a little bit of rest in there. When we look at Ezekiel 18, and by the way, I am so glad that Reagan has gone through Ezekiel with you, so you have the background behind it, and that'll make my task a little bit easier. But we see something that is taking place today. It it has been going on since the beginning of time. What was Adam's excuse for sinning? Oh, the woman you gave me. And Aaron, he makes that golden cat. What with the people, you see? They were the ones insisting on it. Man is always tempted to make excuse for his or her failures. And we're seeing a lot of that. It's even growing in society today. We, I'm old enough to remember when you got in trouble at school. You got a note and you had to show it to your parents saying that, you know, you didn't do something the teacher said to do or the principal has sent this note home or maybe the coach. And, you know, the parent would read that and, and tell the child, well, you know, you're going to be punished a second time for giving the teacher a hard time. Well, we all know what they've been doing for decades now. As soon as the child comes up, oh, I had to stand in the corner. Oh, they made me put me in detention or something. The parent marches right down there to the school and starts yelling at the principal, administrators, or whatever. You know, it's your fault that my kids misbehaved. And we don't want to hold our children or ourselves even accountable. And it's sad. Uh, I also am old enough to remember you could go out and buy a new lawnmower. And if there was any tag on it anywhere it was just something that you know told you where to put the oil and where to put the gas uh, but not today they've got tags all over the place you know and do not put your feet under the mower while it's running do not put your hand you know you have to do that anymore because 
I hurt myself and I'm suing the manufacturer because they didn't warn me, you know. I was telling Reagan, I said, you used to buy an appliance and on the, the power cord, there'd be this real teeny little tag. It just said UL approved. But now they got these big red tags all over everything. And, you know, you read all through it, and you know, it's stuff like, you know, do not attempt to plug this in while taking a shower and stuff like it. They, it has to be, you know, just all spelled out. It's because people are making excuses. And God's people were doing the same. In Ezekiel 18, we see that the word of Jehovah comes to this group of people who are in captivity. They were children of Judah taken into captivity. This is the second group. You know, there were three deportations. Daniel, we studied this morning in the first. Ezekiel in the second deportation. And he is to prophesy to these who are in captivity. And one of the major problems that he encountered was the fact, or excuse me, the refusal of the people to admit their sins. It was their sins that had gotten them into trouble and had caused them to be taken into captivity, blaming someone else for their problems. We need more gun control. We take a car and kill people in a Christmas parade. So I guess we need what? Car control? Knife control? The Bible says we need self-control. We need to stop making excuses for why bad things happen and start causing or calling people to be responsible for their behavior. And so he said to these who are in captivity, you're not going to use this proverb any longer. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You're not going to do that. And what's interesting, and he's going to explain why that's the case in the rest of the chapter. But what's interesting is that another prophet, contemporary with Ezekiel. Now remember, Ezekiel is in Babylon talking to these captives, God's people, while they're in captivity. But back in Jerusalem, Jeremiah has been prophesying and he prophesied during this period of time. And Jeremiah was dealing with the same attitude back there. In chapter 31 and verse 28, it'll come to pass, God is saying, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow and destroy. In other words, while God's people are t being taken away into captivity by Babylon, it was God's purpose and his plan. The prophets had prophesied this would happen if they didn't repent. And so, while they're being taken away captive, it's not because God's on vacation. God said, no, I'm watching over that. <clears throat> and he told Habakkuk, he said, you know, that this is going to be bad, but the just will live in his faithfulness. The just will live by faith. And so people like Daniel and others had their faith tested, but they, they lived, didn't they? They lived in their faithfulness during this difficult time. God says, I, I was watching over them when all of this is happening. But verse 29, or rather verse 28, I'm also going to watch over them to build to plant and to plant. Because God had also prophesied after 70 years of this captivity, they would be able to return, rebuild. God says, I'll be with them then too. 
But, verse 29, in those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth are set on edge. We're blaming somebody else. As we were growing up in southern Texas, San Antonio, long before interstates had been completed, Dad would take the family once a year up to see his parents and my mom's parents, northern Kentucky, middle Ohio. And so we'd make this 36-hour trip all the way up there every year. And it was usually the first part of June, right after you get out of school. And so we head up there, and my Grandpa Reeves had about five acres. He was retired, and he, he loved gardening. And he had all kinds of, of, of berry patches, all different types, and Grandma would make jellies out of it. He had this big row of Concord grapes. And when we get there, those Concord grapes had just pretty much turned purple, but they weren't ripe. And he would tell us, you know, boys, you, most of you know, there were six of us. And he would tell us, he said, now boys, he said, you know, don't try to eat those grapes. He said, they're sour, they look ripe, but they're not. And you know exactly what happens when you tell young boys don't, to, don't do something. Um, so we did. <laughs> it, they, they looked right to us. And I have eaten sour grapes. And Mike, I mean, it's just like chalk. <laughs> you, know, you just go, ooh. Well, Grandpa was right. But I didn't eat a sour grape, and then all of a sudden one of my brothers start feeling the effects of it. No, whoever ate it, they're the ones whose teeth were set on edge. And so it is when we look at this situation, you might ask, what does this have to do with Calvin's tulip? Well, tonight we're going to accomplish, I hope, two different things. One, we're going to talk about this text and see how that, not only can we not make excuse for our sin, but that we need to deal with that sin or there will be consequences. Calvin's tulip and Calvinism, that teaching that permeates most denominations today, allows for excuse-making of sin, depending on which denomination and what, their, what portions of Calvinism they use. It's important for us to have a general understanding of Calvinism and to see that even in this chapter, what is taught in Calvinism is plucked up. It's simply not true. But it's not a matter of just showing that Calvinism is in error, but showing that God's people, anyone who is going to enter into heaven, is going to enter in because they have dealt with their sin according to the covenant they, they were under, whether old or new. The idea that you are responsible. And we're living in a time when nobody is responsible for anything. It's always someone else. It's society. This is recently in Chicago. A group of young people getting on social media all got together and came down into the main part of town and basically it was just one big riot. 
And they were smashing in store windows and so forth and beating up other people. And the mayor comes out and says, well, you know, let's don't be too hard on them. You know, they're just young people and they just don't have opportunities in the community where they are in. And people are scratching their head. What do you mean they don't have opportunities? They don't have opportunities to smash storefronts and loot it? That he was making excuses. You know, they're just young people. We don't want to hold anybody accountable. And that's the, the society that we are in. It is pervasive. And if we're not careful, we'll do it to ourselves. I know what the Bible says, but, you know, and we'll make an excuse. And here's the point. God's people have done it for centuries, for millennia. Adam, as we indicated, Aaron, and you, you, you can come up with all kinds of other examples of people making excuses. And here they are. We're in captivity, but are we sitting here thinking about what we've done that has caused it? No, no, we're blaming someone. Now, now think about this. They were half right. The fathers had eaten sour grapes. But their problem was the children didn't want to admit that they were eating them too when they were taken into captivity. So as we look at Calvin's tulip, let's just briefly um, orient ourselves to what we're talking about. Early 1500s, Calvin is born, and he's influenced by Luther. And both of them, Luther and Calvin, were influenced by a fellow named Augustine who lived around the 3rd century. And they were dealing with the problem of sin. Who's responsible why is it that we sin and so forth? And again, I don't have time to get into it in depth, but the point is they're dealing with the problem of sin, and that's what Ezekiel is dealing with. And we find that Calvinism ends up spreading into England, Scotland, then eventually over into America, and it, it uh, is prevalent in many denominations. Not all of it. One Baptist writer, for instance, indicated the fact, he said that we are, we, we are decidedly Calvinistic, meaning we don't take all of the points, but some of the points. So we have to be careful there that we don't charge everybody with believing every point. Presbyterianism, especially you Reformed Presbyterians, will hold to all five points. But Calvin's most fundamental doctrines were popularized under this acronym TULIP. Now, he didn't write it that way. His followers did. And they're the ones who came up with that acronym, TULIP. Well, what does TULIP mean? Well, we're going to see that it is something that is built upon the misconception about God's sovereignty. We, we understand the word sovereignty means to rule over. His foreknowledge of something, his predestining of things. There are things God has has foreordained, there are things that God foreknows. But it doesn't contradict our free will. <clears throat> but their understanding or their view of God's sovereignty is that <clears throat> a, a person can't say no to someone who is sovereign. If God rules over all, this is the argument, if God rules over all, then man cannot say no to God. Because if, if, if you say God says to do something, and you say no, then he's not in control. 
Well, that's not true because men can say no, but not with impunity. You can say no to God, and you will answer for that. Always, every time, in every way. Sin is sin. It's a transgression of the law. No one's going to transgress God's law and not be punished for it unless that sin has been redeemed God's way. And, of course, that's the blessings of the gospel. But the point is, you can say no to God, but you will answer for it. You eat sour grapes, your teeth will be set on edge. And so this theory, kind of like a house of cards, if you get rid of one part of it, it's going to collapse entirely. How so? Well, let's just look at it. Calvin's tulip, if you would. Like I said, it's an acronym. The T stands for total depravity, that, that man inherits sin and he is totally depraved. And if he's totally depraved, then how is he going to be chosen to go to heaven? Someone says, well, you, you, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So he reads God's word. and he, No, no, no. If he's totally depraved, he can't even read God's word and gain faith by it. That would indicate a good heart. But no, no, we're totally depraved. So God is going to come and choose certain people to be saved without any conditions. Now, if that's the case, someone would say, well, then I, I thought the Bible says Jesus died for all. They go, no. Those passages mean that Jesus died for all that he's chosen to save. So his atonement is limited in that sense. It's limited to those that God has already predetermined to save. Other passages, Paul tells Timothy, God who would have all men be saved, they read into that God who would have all men that he has chosen to be saved, which doesn't really make sense in the context, plus we can't read into God's word. And if that's the case, they say, then God's grace is irresistible. You cannot resist God's grace. Now, Paul told the Corinthians, he said, you be careful lest you receive God's grace in vain. But they go, no, 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 you can't resist. If God's chosen you to be saved, you can't. Remember, he's sovereign. Whatever God says goes, that's true. But if God gives a person a choice and says, you've got the path of life, or you have the path of death. Remember our studies in, in Deuteronomy? I give you these two choices. you got life or death. And if God does that, who am I to question God? But they go, no, no, no. No, if God's chosen you to be saved, there's no way that you're, you're going to resist it. And so you will persevere. Or the more common phrase is, once saved, always saved. Let's look at it just a little more detail. They say, man is born inheriting Adam's sin, therefore he is totally depraved. The, the little babies are born with Adam's sin. And just, I want to be careful here and don't, don't chase too many rabbits. It's hard, hard not to do that on a subject like this. One brother said, i got 23 minutes, and so... Um, Fifteen of them are already gone. <laughs> but that's one of the reasons for infant baptism. 
people sometimes question, why do, why do people saying you have to baptize babies? Well, be, to get rid of that original sin. They call it original sin. They call it Adamic sin. They call it inherited depravity. Therefore, he is totally depraved. There's the T of your tulip. So, if he's totally depraved, he couldn't even hear and believe. You think about all those passages where the Lord said, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, you're going to have to be responsible. You see that in, in all the... Look at the churches, the letters written to the churches uh, in the book of Revelation. Those churches in which God called on them to change and to repent. Every one of those letters at the end, what does it say? He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. That's calling on individual responsibility, but they go, no, no, no. You, if, if you're so depraved, you can't even hear and believe. Therefore, God has to choose you or elect you to be saved. And if God's doing it, then there's no conditions. You, you don't have to have ears to hear and then respond. There, there's no obedience involved. God just chooses you to be saved. It's unconditional. And if it's unconditional, like I said, we're going to start asking questions. Well, I thought the Bible said Jesus died for all. And they go, well, he died for all of the chosen. God's going to save a predetermined number of individuals. One Calvinistic writer said, the number is so fixed as to not be changed by one. In God's mind, he has so many people going to be saved and so many people are going to be lost, and there's not going to be any changing of that. Well, the, obviously the Bible doesn't teach that. And so they're having to, to deal with the passages that talk about Jesus dying for all, and, and so they go, well, he just died for the elect ones, and therefore his atonement is limited to them. And if God has determined certain individuals to be saved, without any conditions, then that means his grace and salvation cannot be resisted. In other words, if God chooses you to be saved, there's no way you can be lost. Now we're starting to get down into a situation where we're talking. This isn't just about saying what they teach is wrong out there and what we teach is right. This has to do with wondering how it is that people who today would call themselves Christians, and yet they're committing some obvious sins, and you go, how can you do that and still talk about going to heaven? Well, they consider themselves part of the elect. I'm not resisting God's grace because it's irresistible. And if God's grace cannot be resisted, there's no way that that individual can be lost. They, they will persevere until the end, or once saved, always saved. And we've heard that phrase. And so, that's what allowed... I, mean, I may be doing some things, I, but I'm part of the saved. There's no way I can be lost. And I'm being told that by my pastor or reverend or minister or whatever the person may call themselves. And this is what they believe. So why should I be concerned about worship and whether it is authorized or not? Why should I be concerned about marriage and divorce and remarriage and what does God accept? You know, it, if I'm part of the saved, there's no way I can be lost. That, that's why people have a difficulty sometimes with the truth 
because they have been bombarded with this teaching, and it is pervasive. But let's take a look at what Ezekiel does in this matter. Let's look at first verses 5, or begin in verse 5. We talked about the fact that God said, first of all, you're not going to blame anybody else. You can't blame Adam's sin, can't blame your parents' sin. Whoever eats the sour grapes, his teeth are going to be set on edge. And then he talks about three generations. Kind of interesting. We're not going to read every verse, but we are going to look at the first generation. Here's a man. He is just. He does what's lawful. And let's just notice what he has to say about this man. Verse 6. He's not eaten upon the mountains. He's not lifted up his eyes to idols of the house of Israel. So his worship is is what it should be. He has not been worshiping in error like others. This man is a good man. He's a just man. And the Bible says he hasn't defiled his neighbor's wife, neither he's come near a woman in her impurity. And so we see that there's sexual purity in his life. It's important. And verse 7, the Bible says that he hasn't wronged anybody. He's restored the debtor his pledge. He hasn't taken anything by robbery or, or uh, but, but rather he's given bread to the hungry and so forth. This man is very uh, good in his stewardship financially and social virtues as well. Verse 8, he doesn't uh, give forth an interest and he hasn't taken any increase and so forth. We find that there is, is uh, legal justice. He executes true justice between man and man. Verse 9, he walks in my statutes. He's kept my ordinances. He deals truly. He is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord Jehovah. He's doing what is right, and he's staying away from the sinful things of life. He's just, and he will live. And his kids will do okay, too. Well, they may. But I've known some good people who made a sincere and good effort to raise their children to serve the Lord. But just as the fathers did not eat sour grapes and that caused the children's teeth to set on edge, so it is. Many times there are good parents who have children that don't follow in that path. And that's what happens with the next generation. Verse 10, if he beget a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood, and doeth, doeth any one of these things, and doeth not any of those duties or things that he should be doing, and that's what I'm saying. We're not going to take. He he goes and talks about you know. He doesn't do all of the good things the dad did. He does participate in all of those things that the dad stayed away from. And so, what is his plight? He shall surely die, and his blood will be upon him. He'll be respond, which is a phrase in scripture. You recall that phrase: "His blood will be upon him." 
is a phrase to reference the idea of responsibility. He'll be responsible for his own sin. Not his parents. Nobody else. But here comes one that sometimes we use, if we're not careful, God's people, we use as justification for somebody's sin. We say, well, so-and-so, you know, they're dealing with this or that, but you have to understand what their parents were like. Here's a wicked man, and we know what kind of kids he's going to have, right? Wrong. Look what God says. Verse 14. Now, he begets a son. He begets a son, and he sees all that his father's, all of his father's sins which he has done, and he feareth and doeth not such like. Why? Because we're not born totally depraved. We do have a choice in this life, and we need to be teaching ourselves first as parents. And if we have children, we need to teach them you too have responsibility for your actions. Here's a young man who comes along, he looks at the way his dad's living and says, that's not right and I'm not going to do that. And as you read down through there, what does it say? Well, he doesn't eat upon the mountain. A phrase used to refer to idolatry. He doesn't commit idolatry. He doesn't defile his neighbor's wife. Verse 16, he doesn't take from another man wrongfully and so forth. He doesn't rob and all of that. On the other hand, he does good, verse 17. You see, he helps the poor and so forth. He walks in my statutes. He will not die. Look at the latter part of verse 17. He will not die for the iniquity of his father. He will surely live. And as for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother, and did that which was not good among the people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Oh, yeah. The bad son, if you would, will answer. And that's the point. God holds us all accountable. This doctrine of, well, you know, we're born totally depraved, and so we can't be accountable for the things we do. If we're going to be saved, it's because God chooses us. If we're going to be lost, it's because God chooses that. But it's not my fault. Not according to this. Guy has a good father, decides to do what's bad. Guy has a bad father, decides to do what's good. Because we all can choose to do what's right. It's not easy growing up with a bad set of parents. But I've seen people reject that livelihood and live godly lives in my lifetime. But if I haven't seen it, it wouldn't matter. God says you can do it. So, Calvinism ends up being denied as we look down through the rest of the verses. Again, we can't read all of them, but I just want you to see, and I put them on the screen to make it a little bit easier. Let's just notice a couple of things. There's no total depravity or inherited sin. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? In other words, why can't we say that we're in captivity here because of what our parents did? Well, here's the answer. 
when the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul that sins, it will die. One of those passages that really needs to be part of our memory group. The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. We, we, as parents, we have to be careful that we don't excuse bad parenting. But when we look at what God says and we look at what we've done and it's matching up, and then we ask ourselves, and it, it's heartbreak to say, what, you know, I've got this child is, is faithful, and this, child, this one has gone astray. What happened there? We may not know all that happens because we don't know the hearts of men. But there is a case for parents not beating up on themselves when they've done what is right. And the child decides to do what's wrong. It's heartbreak, but... There's no purpose. in be, the, the, the father will not suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Isn't God saying, you've got to be responsible? You can't go sue this corporation because they didn't put a little tag somewhere on the lawnmower saying, don't put your hands under... The mower while it's running. Be careful using the Ginsu knife. It'll cut your fingers off. Make sure your fingers are out of the way. At some point in our life, we have to take responsibility for what we do. There is no unconditional election. When the wicked person turns away from wickedness, he's committed and does what is right, he will save his life because he considered and turned away from all of the transgressions which he committed. He will surely live. He will not die. So now you see a person is chosen by God, okay, to live and not die. But he starts out a wicked person. What, what caused the change? Well, it wasn't God just saying, oh, I know they're wicked, but I'm just going to save them. No. No, they listened to what God said and considered, there's one condition, and then repented or turned away. There's another. And God says, when you do that, when you meet those conditions, all of the transgressions that you've committed, you'll surely live. Because I will forgive them is the point. They didn't want to have to be responsible for their sin. And so they said, well, the way of the Lord is not just. God is not fair. And God comes back and says, oh, house of Israel, are not my ways just? Is it not your ways that are unjust? You're the ones who are not being fair by blaming your parents for your behavior. You are old enough to make a change in your own life. And that was Ezekiel's point. We've got to accept the fact we are here in captivity because of the sins we committed. You might say, why is that so important? Because you'll never get true repentance until you own up to the fact that you've done something wrong. 
in a lot of the passages here, as you've already noted, deal with idolatry. Do you know that after this captivity, you know, idolatry, it, it goes all the way, like I said, you go, go back to Aaron and the problems there of God's people wanting to represent God with some idol. And you see that all through the kings and the chronicles, you see some good kings, some bad kings. But what made the bad kings bad was the fact that they're bringing in idolatry, in some cases other gods like Baal or the Asherah. But the point is, is that God's people struggle with this for centuries. They go into captivity they finally own up to why they went into captivity. And when they come back out, they don't have any more problems with idolatry. Jesus didn't have to deal with that. Now, <laughs> Satan always puts other sins out there for us. But the point is, it worked. When they finally said, yeah, this is what, this happened 70 years of captivity because we didn't listen to God in respect to idolatry, and repent. They don't do it anymore. Limited atonement? Really? No, like Paul told Timothy, God who would have all men be saved. God is speaking and he says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? I want them to live. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn, live. God wants everyone to live. Spiritually is the idea. To be alive, be in fellowship with Him. Irresistible grace? Oh, you can resist it. Notice what He says about the righteous. When a righteous person turns from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? Oh, yes, yes. You know, once you're saved, you're always saved. No, that's not what the passage says, is it? None of the righteous deeds which he has done shall be remembered, for the treachery of his, uh, he is guilty, and the sin he has committed for them he shall die. Be baptized into Christ, raised to walk in newness of life, then decide to go back and follow Satan. If you die in that state, that baptism means nothing. Other than what Peter said, that you'll, you'll regret it. Like the sow that is washed, you know, returning to the mire, a dog to its own vomit. You'll regret that because you knew what to do to be saved and you chose a different path. Yeah, you can resist, but like we said earlier, not with impunity. And there's no perseverance of the saints as they call it. When, when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it, just as we read. You can turn away. However, understand this. Saints can and really must persevere. That's a biblical term. We're told to persevere. And we can. And that's just another sermon. But, you know, through the power of God's word, through prayer, through the promises that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to bear, we, we have his providence. There's so much that God gives us to allow us to not only be saved, but stay saved. 
we can, and God is there for us. Because the same God that is talking to her says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't want us to turn away from those things. He's a compassionate God and a good God. And just as he called on the people there in captivity, own up to your sin, turn from that sin, and there will be life. You remember what Jeremiah said? The verse, that's the reason why I put that verse just before his quoting, the fathers have eaten sour grapes. I was there when they're taken away into captivity, when they're destroyed, when they're plucked up, and I will be there so that they can build and be restored. If you're here tonight and you have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, you haven't made the good confession that Jesus is Lord, you haven't turned from sin, you haven't been baptized into Christ. Like Ananias told Saul of Tarsus, why are you waiting? Why are you tarrying? Arise, be baptized and wash away your sins. No, it's not by the water, but by the blood of the Lamb. The book of Revelation talks about Christians having their life, their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. And they're white. They're sinless. And you can be sinless too through the atoning power of Jesus' blood. It's God who appropriates that. God is the one who makes that determination, but He does it when you obey the gospel of His Son. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And if you're here tonight... And ready to do that, you will be saved too. And none of the sins which you have committed will be remembered or held against you as God forgives them. And God will be with you. Because the same God who is here today for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ is the God who is back then talking to his people saying, I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies. If you have not had your sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb and you die, you'll pay for that sin eternally. And it won't be because God hates you. God loves you. That's why He sent His only begotten Son. But if you reject His love, God in His compassion asks, Why? Why do you want to die this way? Why do you want to die eternally? Why do you want to pay for that sin in the devil's hell? I don't want you to. I want you to turn and live. Leave the sinful life. Come to the Lord. Obey his will this evening as we stand and sing this song. (laughs) 